The Local Podcast by Home Slice Media and Pioneer Bank and Trust. Welcome to The Local Podcast. This is episode two of our program featuring business issues around the Black Hills area and beyond. On our debut episode about three months ago, we interviewed the president and CEO of Pioneer Bank and Trust, Dylan Clarkson. Today, we're happy to have Clay Berkland, Senior Vice President of Pioneer Bank and Trust and also the manager of the Belfouche location of Pioneer. Clay, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate you taking some time to come in today and be on the show and want to talk to you about, in particular, a number of ag issues today, although certainly a lot of those are, are affected by this COVID crisis as well, so I'm sure we'll be talking about that throughout. But as we start today, I want to talk a little bit about sort of where we left off when Dylan was here, which is hard to believe was in some ways three months ago, seems like it was three weeks ago. In other ways, it seems like it was three years ago, but we were just kind of in the beginning of um, of the COVID-19 pandemic at least as it affected people here locally and just a couple of weeks after a number of businesses had shut down and the PPP program was just getting underway um, in its first wave was just beginning. But I wanted to kind of start with the pandemic and sort of your impressions of what it has meant for, for, for business here and, and how you felt that the CARES Act and particularly the PPP uh, rolled out for local businesses. Well, in our office, we joke about it as being February 103rd because yeah. <laughs> it feels like we've, we're frozen in time, if you will, from the beginning of when the coronavirus or COVID became part of our daily fabric. Um, we learned to adjust uh, with some guidance from local healthcare officials. Uh, then, of course, we did, as you mentioned, the CARES Act and the PPP loans came out, which kept us extremely busy in-house. Our lobbies were closed. Our drive-up remained open, but it kept us. I, we did somewhere right near 600 individual PPP loans to the tune of $60 million, um, hopefully helping a lot of people stay in business and people stay employed. But that kept us very active for a period of time. Uh, once that, uh, we tried to eat a whole pizza in one bite, it felt like, there for a while. And we have that behind us now, and we're trying to figure out what our world looks like as we go ahead with uh, new rules, uh, new ways of approaching business uh, with distance. Um, we previously liked to see people eye to eye and would get documents signed across our desktops. Of course, with social distancing and things of that nature, we've gone to uh, DocuSign to get remote signatures, uh, something we could have adapted earlier but had chosen not to, but now it's become uh, just a daily operating procedure for us. Um, we have tried to stay very much in touch with our customer base, finding out what, what is impacting them. Is it a cleaning routine, a cleaning schedule, uh, changes of foot traffic into their businesses? Of course, if you're in the restaurant tourism business, that's very challenging to get folks in your doors when you have limited number that can be there during your business hours. So it, the, the delivery mechanism for a lot of folks has changed significantly. Um, how can we help facilitate that with, you know, is it payment streams, uh, remote deposit capture uh, we're exploring many avenues we've we've not taken a we've not had a lot of experience with previously um, so we're learning along with everyone else how to deal on a daily daily basis with a, a change in the way our businesses patterns are productive clay, clay just as um the circumstances surrounding 
the pandemic are different in different areas of the country. That's even true here in our region. And it's been true at Pioneer Bank in that all, all of the bank lobbies were closed for a time, then reopened, and then you closed some again. And where does all that stand now at your various locations as we record this today? Uh, across our business uh, footprint, we have all our lobbies open and all our drive-up open. Um, you know, we, we do have cleaning practices in place to try to minimize and mitigate the risk of exposure. Um, our ATMs are wiped routinely, trying to you know, limit the opportunity for exposure. Uh, and we'll probably adjust something tomorrow as we need to right. <laughs> accommodate the current situation. As we back up and think about when this uh, whole thing started, when was the first time uh, it dawned on you as a prominent local business person that this was going to be a major issue for the bank and its customers? Well, in, in my mind, I'm, of course, a country kid, and I'm by nature uh, socially distanced. I was pretty cavalier in the beginning about uh, this is nothing, this is nothing. Uh, my parents are, hope mom and dad don't hear this part of it, uh, getting a little older now, and they are still actively managing our ranching operation. So I tried to get back there as much as I can to help them out, and I left Belfouche one night, uh, kind of laughing. I'd just been in a, I stopped and picked up some food to, to take them on my way home, and uh, it hit me as I was driving across Highway 212 that I really don't want to be the one to get my mom and dad sick. I, I don't want to be that guy. Right. And up until, until that point, I'd been like, yeah, this is nothing, this is nothing, but all of a sudden, you, you don't want to be the one that endangers your loved ones. Uh or your acquaintances. And that's when it hit more heavily for me. Uh, I also have three uh, freshmen in college last year, kids, uh, University of Wyoming, uh, Casper Community College, and then one at Colorado State. And the one at Colorado State, uh, his life had changed dramatically because they were a lot more aggressive in shutting things down more quickly. Um, and talking with him on the phone really at virtually the same time as I was having my epiphany about my mom and dad, um, the impact it was having on the front range of Colorado. And I could hear from what he was saying that that was drastically going to influence the economics of a college town, especially where, you know, they're built on kids coming in the door and eating and buying drinks and shoes. And, uh, that, that was all changing rapidly. So that, that's when it hit me the water in the face of, wow, this is more than just a little scare. It's going to be with us a while. And that was, you know, probably the middle of March when that really struck home for me. Yeah, I think that's about the timing, really, for most of us uh, here. And and then, of course, many, many local businesses were closed entirely here for six or seven weeks. With benefit of hindsight, we know now that there weren't a lot of cases here at the time. And, and I'm not trying to get you to second-guess any decisions that were made then. But as you look at it now in hindsight, um, were the closures necessary here at that time, in your opinion? In my opinion, I would say no. Again, I have a tendency to be more cavalier about these things because I have the, my brain operates with my personal experience, which is growing up in Northwestern South Dakota, you're seldom are you within six feet of another person. It's pretty common to be, not see anyone all day. Um, You know, I live on a windy hilltop in Aladdin, Wyoming. And again, I'm, (laughs) I'm not elbow to elbow with anyone, but I certainly respect the fact that those living in downtown Denver, for instance, in high rise, they're exposed to 700 people within 100 yards of them constantly. So their window into the world is much different than mine. I'm thankful to live where I do and not have their concerns, but but it's real. 
to answer your question more directly about shutting things down, um, it was the most conservative decision to make, uh, but I continue to advocate for getting businesses open and up and running and being more aggressive. Uh, being a leader at a time when other, everyone else is scared is, is hard to do, but I think to be a leader you need to say, we are going to remain open for business, we are going to do business, and our economy will not shut down. We, we will not live in fear. Um, that, that's my opinion. So in that regard, um, I would presume then that uh, you think South Dakota's governor has handled the, the, the crisis well to date. I would agree with that, yes. Do you, would you contrast that at all with the, with the governor in Wyoming, who has probably done a good job as well, but has, but has taken a little bit, a decidedly different approach? Uh, you know, we live in northeastern Wyoming, uh, and that's much different than southeastern Wyoming. Of course, Cheyenne country, nearing the front range of Colorado, population density. They have challenges we don't, so their perspective, where the lawmakers were gathered at the time, is definitely influenced by... Uh, location and what you're hearing from just across the border to the south. Uh, I would believe that you would see Crook and Campbell and Weston counties continue to think that it's probably a little silly to be as aggressive aggressive as we have been uh, in other parts of the state. But um, you know, you do have a lot of influence from more populated areas around Cheyenne, Casper. Uh, so I see why he did made the choices he did. Um, but I still think the model chosen by Governor Nome was probably the more appropriate approach to take given the population density we enjoy here. Of course, you've been involved with the Black Hills Roundup on a number of levels for many years now. And uh, talk about the decision behind the the Roundup deciding to move forward with its celebration. Well, the guys that put that on are, at the end of the day, just a bunch of cowboys. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We like to see horses buck and calves get roped and uh, people get together. And uh, that decision was made early in May. Um, and if you take yourself back mentally till the last couple of weeks in April, the first week in May, we'd all been closed up for enough time that we were getting itchy, twitchy, antsy, wanting to be outside. For sure. Uh, the weather was getting better. We wanted something to do as a society and a culture. And I think they just kind of gathered around the table and said, we're doing this, um, We'll follow rules, we'll take suggestions, but we're going to do it. And if you want to be here, come. If you think you need to stay home, stay home. But for those that want to participate, we're going to put it on. Uh, Thank the good Lord that was the right decision to make because we had exceptional attendance. People enjoyed it. Uh, The contestants, of course, came from across America. It's crazy that typically the 4th of July, also referred to as Cowboy Christmas, is so active across Western America. Um, because so many counties and municipalities shut down their what are typically uh, facilities owned either by a county or by the city, they elected to take the more conservative approach and shut it down. Belfouche took the approach of, we're going to do this, and did. Uh, Those contestants were ecstatic to have somewhere to go, and you saw that turn out in Mandan, Belfouche, Dickinson, uh, Kildare, Crawford, Cody had uh, the courage to step outside the box in Wyoming and say, we're doing it as well. Um, And I think they were all rewarded for that. Um, And we had probably the best contestant list we've ever enjoyed in in Belfouche and all those other rodeos I mentioned did as well. Probably in a couple of ways. I mean, you probably had more contestants than normal for sure. And then the quality of the rodeo athletes was probably among the best you've ever had, right? And the... 
cool part about that was because there hadn't been rodeos, the, the livestock contractors also, you know, those horses are born to be competitive animals. They're athletes. They want to participate just as much as the, yeah. the cowboys do. Yeah. And they'd been holed up at home for 60 days. So they came to town and they bucked. They, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had a lot of built up energy they needed to expend. So yeah, we had good contestants and good stock to compete on because everybody kind of been on a break for a while and was pretty fresh. And of course the, uh, the famed Black Hills Roundup happens on the 4th of July weekend. That very same weekend was a huge event, uh, at Mount Rushmore. The fireworks came back for the first time. The president was there. A great number of people were there as well. There had been a lot of concern among some that this was going to be, a uh, a, a major issue and, and possibly cause spread. And, and yet here we are, as we're recording this today, we're several weeks beyond that. That doesn't appear to have transpired uh, at either location or as a result of either event. I don't think you could indicate that the needle moved because of those events, no. Um, thankfully, I think we were proven correct that if you take a few precautions, um, use your head, It'll turn out okay. I'm not trying to, going to try to make you to be a scientist or a doctor, but do you attribute some of that to the that it was that these are largely outdoor events? Is that the difference? Well, I'm not a doctor, and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. But, <laughs> I, you know, you, yeah, you're outside, uh, drier, drier air, all the, all those things that are surmised to help. Uh, we're present, so hopefully that's or potentially those are some of the reasons we we had the good results and and little spread. Well, and even even in a state that has had uh, not a lot of cases, uh, Butte County, where the Belfouche Bank is located, is among the very lowest of the lowest. I think maybe three cases total now, and when a very long time was zero, right? The, yeah, and some of the irony to me of that is uh, a lot of the other communities in the Black Hills did go to masks early, um, shut down lobbies. The cities made decisions to do that, and in Belfouche specifically, we said, no, we're just going to keep on being who we are um one of our local businesses runnings has had some of the greatest success of recent years because they stayed open um you know that that is calving season uh, planting season in western south dakota and people need supplies and they will go where it's available uh, runnings had the courage and has been fortunate not to have any spread in their business of course um, and i think they've enjoyed positive results because they were they did make the decision to stay open and active. One of the main things we want to focus on today is egg issues, both those related to COVID and and not. Uh, before we do that, though, just one more question on this, and back to the PPP for just a second. Uh, it, it has um, come under kind of widespread criticism around the country, and yet probably without a doubt propped up the uh, economy for a time. With benefit of the hindsight that we have now, we'll have much more later, but with the time we have now, what is your take overall, and not just at your bank, but a, a, around the country, on how the program rolled out, and how much do you think it is helping the economy now? And and then as a final part of that, how much of that is in the numbers now and maybe propping up the economy that as some of that money slides back out, especially in the heavy infected areas, uh, we may see a greater economic fallout? Or is, is, it, is, the, is, the, is the feeling that the economy is hanging in there somewhat falsified by all that capital that's in the market? That's definitely 
a possibility. Um, of course, I do have a minor in economics from Colorado State, so now I'll talk like an economist for a while, which means <laughs> I'll, I'll say a lot and never give you an answer. Uh, that said, uh, yeah, it did inject and bankers speak a lot of liquidity into the system. It, it dropped cash into checking accounts that we use to pay employees. Uh, those employees, of course, continue to live, um, so they buy groceries, buy cars, do the things we, we wanted them to do. Uh, I would stop for just a second and say I'm I am a capitalist. I am against uh, government programs, and I was very hesitant when this when I first heard of this program to think, "Oh boy, what are we getting ourselves into now?" But as opposed to the way previous programs had been administered, this one was handled through the banks, um, so it was able the the SBA just isn't large enough to handle the volume of traffic that they saw. So they somewhere someone had the vision to say, let's deploy this through the banks. And they did. Uh, we were able to get that in the hands of customers very quickly. Um, it has to be unprecedented for oh, the government to be involved in something that rolled out that fast. Overnight. Um, yeah. We heard about it on, I'm playing from memory here, Dean, forgive me, but like on a Friday night, and I think we had our first signatures on a Monday morning. Um, you know, we had people working all weekend to accommodate that, but the government, they continued to have phone calls and uh, come to us over zoom of course which i should have bought stock in that uh, <laughs> but they kept saying we are giving you and i, I forget the exact words but exact the latitude to make these decisions unilateral power i think perhaps it was but uh so it did roll out much more quickly than would typically happen with a government program uh i had customers uh, that employ a lot of folks in my office the prior weeks and you know what do we do we're looking at laying people off uh, how quick do we react um, the PPP loans gave them the confidence to say we are keeping these people employed that gave their employees the confidence to say okay I'm going to go ahead and buy groceries this week and pay my rent this week yeah um, so second guessing is always dangerous uh, but if I were to second guess this, uh, it's a, it was a good decision made to keep confidence in the consumer that I have a paycheck coming next week. Um, and it was done in such a fashion that, you know, it wasn't just a grant to businesses to go. There were parameters placed on it. You couldn't go buy a rental property next door with the funds. It, it has to be used for meeting payroll, and you have to prove at the end that you maintained your same staff size. So they did things so that jobs weren't cut, which, you know, we run on jobs and that's how we pay our bills is getting our paychecks. So I, I think it was exceptionally effective the way it was rolled out. And then ultimately uh, loosened up the number of weeks um, in which the, the capital had to be deployed and a couple of other things mm -hmm. that are, I would imagine as a banker, you were in favor of because it's more likely now that most of your customers will be able to... Uh, prove up the documents necessary in order yep. to have it forgiven, right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, of course, you'd ask an initial question, uh, the dangers of it, and the dangers of it are that we have a false sense of security because we were able to meet payroll through this period of time. Yeah. Um, you know, do you really have as much cash in your checking account as you think you do, or is it still leftovers for not having to, to pay staff? Well, I can criticize it from that perspective, but I'd also say, again, consumer confidence and business confidence to reinvest in your business and maybe grow or keep the doors open still exists because that money is there. So I, I think it's going to have a long-term fallout that's positive for our overall economy. 
as we record today on July 23rd, I think it is, the um, February 103rd, February 103rd, in Washington, they're debating another and perhaps the final, at least the final before the election stimulus program, maybe the final stimulus program related to COVID. Do you have a, an opinion on how you would like to see that go? Or if there should be one at all? There are sectors of industries that have suffered more than others. Um, you know, of course, tourism in Western South Dakota is, is a big thing. Um, if you had motel reservations January 10th, it's unlikely you had them April 10th because people just were afraid to have the confidence to travel. Um, I don't think we need the round of stimulus in volume that we had initially, but some help for those businesses that suffer, you know, I have a lot of friends that are in the retail restaurant industry. Um, you still do the hard work. Uh, people still want to eat, but they can't. <laughs> Just in, you can't handle the volume of traffic. Uh, of course, you and I both know it's all about plate turns uh, at a restaurant, and if you cut your tables in half, you don't get the plate turns that you have previously. Um, people aren't congregating. Uh, you know, we all like to get out, get together after work and have a beer. Well, it's we still can. He just might have to do it in the backyard instead of in a retail location. It profits from that. So it's uh, it's hard to see those things or those folks that have taken the initiative to invest in a business not be rewarded for their investment because of something out of their control. Um, that that's tough to watch. And to your question, uh, I would I would like to see probably a little directed that direction. Those industries that are specifically hard hit for a longer period of time. Uh, with sets of rules being placed on them by municipalities, uh, government entities that they have little or no control over. So, We're with Clay Berkland, Senior Vice President, Pioneer Bank and Trust. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Local Podcast from Home Slice Media and Pioneer Bank and Trust. Welcome back into The Local Podcast. I'm with Clay Berkland, Senior Vice President at Pioneer Bank and Trust, and Though we haven't really dug into the issues yet, our main intent today is to talk about agriculture issues, and particularly ag issues in the western South Dakota, northeastern Wyoming kind of region of uh, the country. And Clay, let's start uh, the ag sector of this conversation um, with with COVID and with the PPP program and how the how the CARES Act has been able to also help farm ranch operations. Talk about how that is working and, uh, and, and your thoughts on it. Well, and we have already spoken about the PPP loans. And, of course, some of those funds initially, it was we were told that they would not be applicable to agricultural enterprises. Right. Um, as time went on, that changed. Uh, they had an interim ruling that said, okay, we can go ahead and do that and release some proceeds for that. So we were able to pay some employees for folks through the PPP loans. Uh, sometime after that, the FSA came out with programs based on market dynamics, uh, cattle, hogs, sheep, um, some of the grains that had suffered because of disruptions in the market. Um, and they came with, uh, oh, they were capped at a 250000 but it got money in a lot of producers' hands early in May. Um, that was definitely beneficial to, to folks that if you had feeder cattle that you were trying to take fat and sell, uh, and there were some market disruptions, as I referenced, uh, could cause losses. Uh, I saw some $300 a head. Um, very unfortunate 
timing for those folks, but that, yeah. that program did help put cash back in people's hands so they could meet their bills and keep the doors open. Um, of course, you know, far, far beyond just the COVID issues, I think one of the most interesting things you said when we first started talking about doing this podcast was that uh, farmers and ranchers, people in production, agriculture, are, are 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 facing a set of circumstances for which there is no historical point of reference. Was your were your yeah. words? Talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, you you learn from grandpa and dad how to fix the corner posts and when you sell your calves and how your place is most productive. But they have never had the unfortunate experience we did of a pandemic to deal with on how to best market your livestock and, and delay your sales. Uh, the crazy thing about timing of this is, you know, it happened early in the, or late in the winter, early in the spring where we're calving mm-hmm. typically in this part of the world or lambing. And of course those livestock don't go to market until late into the fall. So we, we haven't realized our losses yet, if you will. Um, and we won't know until we get to that point, although we do have some forward contracts being placed now, uh, if there even will be losses. But, you know, it, I keep using the word confidence and I probably overuse it. But, you know, people wake up with a positive attitude in the morning and as long as they're confident, they'll usually go to bed with a positive attitude. Um, when you take that confidence away or erode it, we quit, we quit buying tractors, we quit buying seed. We may not spend as much on a bull and all those things multiply through our local economy and can hurt us badly. Um, so I, for me, my greatest desire is we can get some cattle forward contracted and some numbers on the table to say, okay, we're going to meet our bills this year. We're going to make our land payment and we're going to invest in next year's livestock production, hay production, whatever business model you are in. Um, we're on the front end of when we sell cattle on video, uh, here in our part of the world and our results so far have been, while not stellar, um, acceptable should let people dig in one more time and this is one year one more year country i guess my dad always said <laughs> yeah I, hopefully most everybody's going to get one more year out of it as how has your crystal ball changed on that from the beginning of this in march or april to now where you're starting to see some contracts i guess you're pleasantly surprised right now uh there was a point in time where i was panicking a little bit about you know Six seven hundred dollar steer calves. We're starting to see nine hundred and a few thousand dollar if they're program cattle steer calves hit the market uh, with contracts. Um, early on, we had so many uh, supply chain issues with, uh, for instance, in kill plants. Uh, if an employee was afraid to be next to someone in a, on a kill floor, uh, it really impacted the volume of product they could kick out in a day um so that backs up your slaughter plant uh yeah. we're not getting as much throughput well when that happens uh you don't stay current uh it does a lot of things with your uh, fat cattle don't sell as well because you don't know what kind of market they're going to cut out into it, we, we had little predictability there we're i think getting chewed through that now um, interesting choice of words there. Right, right. Uh, we we got through Memorial Day. We had a good grilling season over that weekend. Uh, we used a lot of products, so now we're starting to have a little pull from the front on product. And when that happens, that's really good news for our part of the world because that's where all those cattle come from. So feeling more confident by the day. Uh, hopefully that 
is rewarded. Was that the scariest part um, from a catalytic industry standpoint? Absolutely. If we don't have kill plants operating, um, well, you saw what happened in the hog industry. Uh, yeah. They were slaughtering hogs because they couldn't keep them on feed um, and basically discarding them as useless. My heart breaks for those folks because that's what they live to do and the inability to deliver a product and do what you enjoy and uh, that's <laughs> takes you out of business in a hurry and I'm sure hope we don't have to see that in our part of the world. It's an age-old uh, conversation. It could be its own program, but it did get punctuated somewhat in this time we're living in now. The disparity between what it's costing to buy beef uh, at the grocery store or, or, or for restaurants to buy the product versus how ranchers are coming out on their end. And we won't go too far down this rabbit hole, but what's your general thoughts on that? Um. I referenced earlier that I'm a capitalist, and I love the fact that we have shade tree butchers popping up left and right. They're making a heck of a living, right? Yeah, now. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I will not apologize to anyone, and I say that the best cattle in America or in the world are produced within 250 miles or less of Belfouche, South Dakota. We have the best product. Um, we can butcher it ourselves and sell it over the table to our neighbor or under the table to our neighbor, excuse me, because it does have to be go through a certified plant to be sold publicly. But if those private bartering systems happen, um, I'm, I'm in favor of it. Uh, of course, we all raise our own beef around here, so it's hard to get it into the hands of the folks that, that are wanting it. But, uh, you know, the national media was saying we had a beef shortage. We never, never had a beef shortage. We had a product shortage because we weren't getting it processed uh, as efficiently as we typically would. But we, we never faced a shortage at all. So, you know, it's the semantics of the situation can cause panic, and hopefully I don't think we ever got to the point of a panic around beef but yeah we had a false price there for a while at the the retail counter was way higher than it is at the producer level and there was, that disparity was fret over quite a little but i think we're we're getting that back in line with where it belongs now so as it relates to the issues we've been discussing in the last 10 minutes or so um i guess you're probably always an optimist to some degree but is it safe to say you're optimistic today compared to uh, back on April 1st? I'm more confident that we are going to see our way through this because we're starting to, you know, you're always nervous about what you don't know. Well, we're starting to know some things. Um, we still live with good people. We still have the best customers in the world. Um, we still have people that do business on a handshake and will do their part at the end of the day to make it through this. Um, there for a while it was kind of nerve-wracking because you didn't know what was going to get shut down uh, we've had some oil field folks go back to work as early as this week uh, just bit by bit we're getting the, some of the pieces put back together to feel like we're going to survive this and um, probably be a little more cautious going forward but yes I, I remain positive and we will get through it uh, hopefully we learned some learned everything we're going to learn already and don't have any more lessons coming down the road at us but Talk just a little bit about, since you touched on it, on uh, the energy markets and how that affects the economy here. We certainly know it in northeast Wyoming. It's a huge, it's a huge thing. Um, what are your kind of, what are your economic comments on, on, on that sector to, as you sit here today? What impacts us the most uh, in the market that I do business in uh, are the employees of the oil fields that live in our area. Um, you know, those are fairly highly compensated jobs um, they bring that money back to western south dakota and spend it 
And then we have a pretty large number of oil field service companies that are based in either northeastern Wyoming or northwestern South Dakota that go up there with employees that live in our communities. Um, when they all came home, or the bulk of them came home, and they were closing down some of the, the roughneck crews, that, that gets nerve-wracking because people are worried about the next month's paycheck. Well, we've, I think, chewed our way through that. Uh, we're starting to get oil back up above $40 a barrel, which seems to be the point where it's compensating the companies for, for pumping, um, and that keeps everybody employed. So I sure hope we stay there. Um, a lot of that, though, is, you know, we slowed the economy so quickly. Uh, trucks were not trucking, and farmers were not farming the things where we burned so much diesel fuel, uh, just weren't making the consumption or use, utilize, using as much excuse me, product as we typically would. So that created a supply chain bubble that we had to chew our way through. But we're getting through that now and probably seeing a little demand again, which summer traffic season always helps out as well. You know, you and I are pretty close to the same age and have a similar length of career. And it's safe to say, and I guess it doesn't really matter how long your career has been, whether it's five years or 75 years Nobody ever really saw this one coming, right? I mean, or anything even kind of like it. You know, we're we're in the risk mitigation business, so we right. always like to insure against the unknown. And um, I certainly did not see this one coming, or I would have bought the insurance policy. But, you know, <laughs> I, I joke with Dylan, our bank president, about uh, we do a strategic planning session every fall, and uh, we try to cover just about every outcome for our markets that we see has potential to exist and and plan around that and i said you know you really messed up last year you did not have this on our agenda anywhere <laughs> to address a pandemic and um of course <laughs> nobody did right yeah it makes for uh, such an interesting period what, what will be the long-term lessons if any or the long-term changes in the economy what what kinds of things do you think we've seen change in the last uh few months that that maybe will won't go back to the way they were before. Uh, I mentioned buying stock in Zoom. I really wish <laughs> I would have been prescient enough to pull that one off. Um, I, I believe we as businesses tend to think that our employees need to be in our house every day. Um, I think a lot of businesses learned that people could work efficiently from home, could work remotely. Uh, phones and laptops became a very necessary item uh, through the pandemic period. And I think some broadband access, uh, Wi-Fi accessibility, things that let us operate in more rural areas, which a lot of our customer service area is quite rural, uh, to have that high-speed Internet access lets people still remain productive and efficient, even if they can't office in every day. Uh, that's probably the biggest thing I see is the we've accepted that you don't have to fly to Nashville to go to a meeting. You can do it via zoom or maybe send a couple of emails back and forth and skip the, the flight to Nashville. Uh, what is the flip side of that though, as far as business travel goes or, or commercial real estate values and things like that as a result of what may be some long-term changes in how businesses well, operate. Mentioned the fact that I thought some industries may need to be targeted with uh, additional support funds from the government uh, you know, there's hubs around some of the airports, uh, say in Denver, where you have travel hotels where people just get together and have meetings. Uh, I 
I'm glad I don't own one of those today because I think that would be it would be a very stressful time for those folks that you know it costs a lot to build things of that nature and uh, when you don't get to see the revenue stream come off them that you anticipated uh, you got to figure out a new way to make your toy work. We're with Clay Berkland, he's senior vice president at Pioneer Bank and Trust. This is the local podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the local podcast from Home Slice Media and Pioneer Bank and Trust. This is the local podcast. We welcome you back in. We're with Clay Berkland, Senior Vice President, Pioneer Bank and Trust. Clay, let's switch gears just a little bit and I guess maybe start by talking about one of the more positive things happening in the marketplace right now, certainly on residential mortgages, but on any kind of uh, of land purchase in particular, interest rates just really unbelievably low. Yeah, one man's trash is another man's treasure, and that's what we're seeing in the interest rate market right now. Is uh, We've chased so much liquidity into the system or so much cash into the checking accounts of Americans at large that there's a lot of money that needs to be deployed somehow. Uh, so to induce that, we've lowered deposit rates uh, and consequently loan rates to the point where you can buy a half-million-dollar house and get a fixed rate of three and a half percent or lower pretty easily today um unheard of you know i bought my first house in 99 and i paid eight and a quarter interest on it (laughs) i thought i was getting the best deal in town and when i got down about to five i was i refinanced and thought i was making all kinds of money and shoot now it's half of that (laughs) i remember those same stories I, i think my first one was around eight something as well but we were coming off uh parents who could remember interest mm-hmm. rates that were double that so <laughs> it seemed like a good deal at the time right yeah uh, we talked earlier about uh, having no historical reference how to manage through this that's kind of the position we're in today we don't we don't know how to manage through where you can hypothetically borrow money against your house at a lower rate than inflation and reinvest it in the market and let the interest pay for it itself it's, it's it, it, is, it is really something and last i talked to uh dylan you're the mortgage unit at your bank is just doing crazy business. I believe yesterday they had like 115 in the pipeline. Uh, that's too many for those gals that are working, yeah. working day and night. And not all refis, though, either, right? People purchasing homes and second homes and uh, new starts. and A lot of purchases in our area. Um, I'm not sure the good or the bad of it, but I personally have always lived in a rural area and love it, and I live there for the very specific reasons. I'm not real fond of people. They're <laughs> neighbors too close to me. Um, and I think the, the pandemic to a degree has driven folks out of Chicago, Minneapolis, yeah. Denver, two more rural areas. Um, of course, we live in one of the prettiest areas in the nation. So we get some of that just for scenery and maybe the environment, the cold winters will keep people chased away a little bit, but I, I still think we do live in one of the best places in the world. And that's, that's driven people to our area some. And yeah, we've seen, uh, not skyrocketing, but definitely escalating real estate values in our area, specifically for single-family residences. Um, I want to ask you about egg values as well in just a moment, but as long as you mentioned it, what is your take on, uh, I mean, obviously residential real estate has high values here. Is it is it bubble high in some areas, or are you comfortable with where it is? Well, you have to fly your airplane at 30,000 feet once in a while and say, you know, base, compared to the national economy, our houses are still cheaper per the square foot than you can get just about anywhere else. So 
I, I don't think it's a, a bubble uh, yet. Um, and we're seeing a lot of cash come into the system, too, um, from people moving from other areas that are selling elevated or escalated real estate values and coming here and spending less than what they sold their comparable property for. So I think that's indicative of the fact that we're, we're not in a bubble, I, I don't think. Um, ag real estate, you, you mentioned that. Uh, you know, we had exceptionally high prices in northwestern South Dakota. Um, I started banking in 1993, uh, moved to Belfouche in 1994. The first place I financed was out east of Newell with $65 an acre for a purchase price. And, of course, I saw that same place sell here in the last five years for north of $700 an acre. So definitely saw the inflation that that place uh, cannot produce revenue to pay for it. So you know there's a bubble in that market to some degree. And we've seen that back off. Uh, we just had an auction, 10, 11,000 acres out near Faith last week that brought about $550 an acre. So it, it has backed off some. The um, pursuit by recreational users has lessened. Um, you know, the, the crazy economy there for a while, of course, the pandemic slows everybody's optimism for a while. So that quit chasing money into the, the ag properties and has them back to a more realistic value, I think. And same deal there, though. Interest rates are lower on ag property than they, they ever have been. So they may cost more, but they're easier to finance to a degree because the, the payments are, are less with lower interest rates. So hopefully that lets people get through this and, and survive. One of the things you touched on just there was, and we've seen this happen uh, in agriculture and, and particularly on farm ranch land that is maybe closer to the to the Black Hills and areas similar to the Black Hills, where the, these properties have reached values where the land itself or running cows on the land is just is, will not produce the revenue it takes to make a payment on that kind of property. How does that change now when if a young person – it's been difficult for a young person to get in the ranching business for a long time, but now without a great deal of capital, if you just want to be a cow-calf operator, how do you buy land and make that happen? It's – still high enough that at most market rates you, you can't accomplish it without some help from family friends that say we just want this kid on this place um of course you know i have growth goals as a bank i need more people borrowing money every year to keep our growth footprint going um so you always want to get that young producer you know a 75 year old typically isn't in a borrowing situation where they're needing to borrow money for a tractor, for their cattle, for their land. Um, so we like the young folks because they bring a lot of volume with them, but they are getting harder and harder to find just because they're, it's so difficult to enter this market. It is so capitally intensive. Um, you know, if you say a 300-head operation is sustainable, well, in most of our part of the world, it takes 40 acres to run a pair for a year, so that says you need 12,000 acres. <laughs> do the math if it's yeah. 500 bucks an acre well you got to come up with six million bucks right there I, I, you don't see a lot of high school college graduates with six million dollars <laughs> in their account to, right. to go buy land so you know you can beg borrow and steal your way into it and fight and claw to, to stay in it long enough but it, it's definitely as hard today as it's ever been one of the things you know we don't like the local podcast to to be a commercial in any sense but the truth is pioneer bank did have uh a few things really going for it coming into this uh, unusual period. And, and one of those is, is the strength of the bank 
financially and its long-term strength. And talk about how that helps your bank operate in, in an environment like this one. Well, I don't want to get too far off in the weeds on bank financials, but one of the things that you're required as a bank is to re- retain capital. Uh, we have always retained more capital than is necessary just because we like to feel safe. Uh, we also have a lot of liquidity. Uh, what that means is we have a lot of money available to lend out to people. Uh, we typically don't get our loan-to-deposit ratio very far north of 50% just because we, we like to be safe and always have room for expansion if it is warranted, but uh, not to the degree of risking our capital. Well, uh, when you have a chance to lend out $60 million in PPP loans, uh, we were in a position to do that without calling anyone and asking for money. Right. Uh, no offense to anyone else, but there were a lot of banks that didn't have access to that much cash at one time, and they had to go borrow from the home loan bank, et cetera, to create that liquidity to, to lend out. So uh, ironically, our conservative lending style left us in a really good position to fund those loans the day that it, that it all happened. Um, we have 107 years of experience of doing this. Uh, but again, we had not experienced this before either. So I'd like to tell you our wisdom got us here uh, to, to do that, but a little bit of luck too, I guess. Is. And, and relationships uh, has always been a big a big thing with Pioneer Bank. And, and uh, you know, when you, when you had to go to a kind of banking that wasn't typical, I imagine having these long-term relationships made it easier to work with customers. Yeah, you're you have a bit of a marriage between you and the customer and some other employees. The they typically bank where their their boss banks uh, or where their paycheck comes from. So yeah, we were pretty deeply rooted with a lot of these entities, organizations, and their employees, and uh, it, you felt a bit of an obligation to make sure that they got through this well too. So um, we were committed; they were committed, and. Uh, we we know they will remain committed because they've been here a lot of them as long as we have. So yeah, the relationship portion of that definitely made you feel more tied to the, the activity we took on with some of those PPP loans and make sure those people had a paycheck come Monday morning. Clay Berkland, Senior Vice President, Pioneer Bank and Trust, has been our guest today on the second episode of the Local Podcast. Clay, thank you. Thank you, Dean. Thanks for listening to the Local Podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are opinion and information. While we strive to be accurate and transparent, any errors and or omissions are unintentional.